for another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens, below the line, with the movers and shakers, the film and TV makers. We talk to the producers, the writers, the directors, the actors, the cinematographers, uh, production designers, costume designers, uh, sound mixers, sound editors, film editors, you name it, we talk to them. Um, Last week, I hope you all had a really great Labor Day. Um, We were not laboring here at Adrenaline Radio, but I was laboring at home, uh, (laughs) working on interviews all day long. Uh, I have so many good interviews that are going to be coming up on BehindTheLensOnline.net as well as pre-records here for the show. And so many are under embargo until the film comes out or the week of release. But there's some good stuff um, that's coming that is in the can. So, you know, be uh, be on the listen for that. And hopefully, you know, go to BehindTheLensOnline.net. Check out the website. Check out the reviews. Check out... A lot of new trailers. Check out a ton of new interviews. And, of course, in the middle of the week, uh, last week, I did a special edition of Behind the Lens radio show. It didn't air on Adrenaline, though. It just went straight out as a podcast. And it was with the wonderful, wonderful filmmaker, Nick Vituri Scone, uh, talking about his documentary, Too Soon, Comedy After 9-11. It is an incredible interview. It's a great doc. If you get a chance, go check it out. Also, on the website right now is another. There's a lot of films right now dealing with 9-11, the 20th anniversary, which we just passed uh, this weekend. Sarah Colangelo's film, Worth, written by Max Borenstein, based on the memoirs of Special Master of the September 11th Victims Compensation Fund, Ken Feinberg. An amazing film. Michael Keaton plays Feinberg and is actually, this is award worthy. I expect to see his name mentioned in in the awards discussion as we get deeper into awards season. Because, hey, it's fall. Toronto Film Festival, Telluride just ended. It's fall. We are officially in awards season. Things are going to be heating up and picking up. Uh, as the months go by and we head to Oscars and to a few others. But uh, worth an amazing film. And then there is a documentary on Ken Feinberg that I will be watching later today because I am interviewing Ken Feinberg tomorrow morning. So I will definitely have that interview for you in the coming week. I can't wait to talk to Ken to get his perspective on 9-11, post 9-11 and that victim compensation fund where he had to perform with the wisdom of Job and the heart of a mere mortal uh, in determining monetary allocation based on the worth of somebody's life. You'll be hearing more about that. But today, we got a full house. Hopefully, uh, our first caller should be calling in already and isn't. So... (laughs) We are supposed to have Matthew Berkowitz calling in, writer, director, and editor Matthew Berkowitz calling in about his psychological thriller, The Madness Inside Me, a film that I absolutely love. I was riveted watching the film, 
And at the midpoint of the show, we're going to have writer-director John Sherman join us, fresh off the world premiere at Dances with Films of his film, They, Them, Us, a comedy with a little bit of drama about uh, blending two families uh, and the issues that they cope with and the comedy of errors that pops up. So I don't know where Matthew Berkowitz is today, but this is why we have contingency plans. While we figure out what's happening with Matthew, I'll tell you what, we're going to give you a taste of my interview, my exclusive with director Sarah Colangelo talking about Worth and Ken Feinberg and his law office, who, by the way, appointed by Congress as the special master of this victim's compensation fund. His firm did all of their work pro bono. They did it for free. There were no fees. There was no anything. This was something that Congress rallied around with this victim's compensation fund, one of the few instances in history where there was no anything, no bickering, no dispute. That in and of itself uh, was astounding, and it shows that we can come together when we need to and have to for the right reasons. So we're going to jump on in, and I will let you start hearing my exclusive with Sarah Colangelo, director of Worth. Hi, Debbie. How are you? I am so excited to get to talk to you again about this film. Yeah. I this is you know what I love about your filmmaking is I saw growth in you as a filmmaker from little accidents to kindergarten teacher Mm -hmm. now I see huge growth in your storytelling with worth wow this 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 is a powerhouse film Sarah a real powerhouse film and you have done a remarkable job bringing this story to life um, with such vivid emotion, but done with such restraint. And I spent 27 years, as Karina can tell you, I spent over 27 years in law. Um, And I'd read Ken's book, and I'd been involved in, in class actions and settlements and a lot of wrongful death. And that's a, that was always the big question, the worth of a human life. Mm-hmm. And it's something people don't stop and think about. But you really present it so beautifully here. It's do you look at a formula and everybody gets the same where you've got multiple parties? Or do you look at the individual what is their contribution? What is their worth to more, uh, you know, is the junkie on the street, is their value more or less than a CEO? And you really present it and you make people think. And this aspect of 9-11 is something that people either didn't know about, didn't understand, didn't want to know about, and... I think they really started to clue in a little bit with Jon Stewart and all his battling with Mm -hmm. Congress for the first responders to reopen the compensation, the victim compensation fund or extend it for them for the, you know, the cancer and all the injuries that were developed manifesting. 
after the fact. But you bring this front and center, Sarah, and do it so, so well. You blew me away. Thanks. You know, where do you even start with a film like this? Because you have a lot happening with performance. You have even more happening. Oh, you and your visual metaphor. You you knock it out of the park here. Um, You do a beautiful job with the visual metaphor with horizontal and vertical blinds, uh, vertical blind, you know, um, the buildings, horizontal and vertical windows, you mm-hmm. and the opening and how you and your cinematographer, Pepe, how you guys, you slowly open as we get more into the film and Ken and his eyes yeah. start opening. We see mm-hmm. the Venetian blinds start opening a little more yeah. and a little more and light coming in. And I love that. So See, not everyone like realizes these things. That's great that you noticed that. Um, yeah, you know, I think you know, for me, what really attracted me to the film was this idea, was the sort of moral conundrum of it. Mm-hmm. You know how math and calculation of dollars and cents and this kind of rational actuarial model. You know how that collides with the the world of raw emotion and nine eleven and the heartbreak of families. So. I think, you know, both Pepe and I thought a lot about that, you know, how do we box our characters in in the beginning? How do we um, show Ken as a little closed-minded, less pliable? Um, And then how do we sort of open him up? And, you know, we even really loosen up with the camera um, towards the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. We have a lot more handheld. um, And we just, we we get a lot more human. I mean, the, the color tones shift a little bit and become more saturated and more rich so um yeah (laughs) that's great that you noticed that um but i mean i think that's the the crux of the film right is is you know um how do you you know what's the you know there's so much tension inherent in the scenario that there's a sort of matter of factness of calculating numbers and how does that just sort of crash um with the heartbreak of countless personal tragedies um you know, and how do we move from a sort of cynicism to open-heartedness and a rigidity to, um, I guess, pliability would be the word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you really give us that great food for thought without shoving it down people's throats either. That's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and you never do that. But I love the way you show us, and it's through the moments of quiet. Mm-hmm. This is not a, a really dialogue-heavy film. You have clear blocks of time and space that is just reflective, where yeah. you have Camille just sitting in her office alone and thinking, where you have Priya just walking mm-hmm. and thinking. Um, and then a lot, a lot for Ken... You know, he's totally closed off from the world with his very orderly, neat collection mm-hmm. of CDs and albums and plugs into his headphones and tunes out the whole world. Was so tuned out on the train that he didn't even realize 9-11 was happening. Um, right. And yeah. you really use that to great advantage, um, forcing us to look and to see. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of um, plot and exposition to get out because I think, you know, how the fund works is complicated. So there was a lot of work in just communicating some of those um, technicalities to the audience. But then I think some of the stronger and most emotional moments are when the characters are alone and you're feeling not just the pain of the claimants, but the pain of a team of people that in a way have to absorb all of this anger and frustration. Um, and, you know, as you know, if you've seen it, you know, gratitude too. I mean, people brought in sort of bronze baby shoes and shoe boxes of photos and mementos and letters and mm -hmm. last voicemail messages. So I was kind of interested in, I guess, the psychological toll of that um, on their end uh, and what, what that was like over the course of, you know, two years that they had to um, put this fun together. Well, and what you really show us with that, and you do that so beautifully uh, in Ken's office, where it has gone from this, you know, very prim and proper and everything, a place for everything, everything in its place, to now you have this collection of humanity there. And that's something that I think you really, you don't let us forget, the human connection. You show yeah. us the, the humanity plays out with all of those objects, with all of those mementos, and reminds yeah. us of people and individuals and taking it beyond dollar signs. Yeah, I mean, Ken Feinberg himself, you know, we, we became um, friendly and he was just so gracious um, in helping us um, with the film and, and giving us, you know, information and um, when we were kind of doing research and creating his offices and, and creating the world. And, you know, he said, you know, of course there were these interviews where money was talked about. He said, but in the majority of them, people just wanted to vent mm -hmm. and talk about their loved ones. And I thought that was so interesting, you know. Yeah. Um, and it was, yeah, it, it, that was a surprising fact. It wasn't really just business. It, there was a lot of sharing. Yeah, and, you know, anytime you have a disaster and something of this magnitude, um, and the fact that, and I'm so glad that you got it in there, is that Ken and his firm did all of this pro bono. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because everybody thinks lawyers are bloodsuckers. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, it's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, he's a really decent guy, and I think, you know, I, I try not to um, lionize him or put him on a pedestal, and I, and I try to leave open to, you know, I, I let the audience decide whether these funds are um, a good thing or a bad thing, mm -hmm. and, and um, but I do think that there's a great decency to both him and Camille, and, and the fact that they put a sort of floor and ceiling on the payouts, I think was, um, I mean, for, re, for me, very admirable. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I, I completely agree. You can't, you have to set some kind of parameter. You have to. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, it's a free for all, and and it becomes yeah. a cash grab. Um, yeah. So yeah, no, I truly, truly, totally respected what he and Camille did all through the entire process, and to see it shown so succinctly here. Um, again, you just you do an amazing job with that, Sarah. You know, I'm I'm curious. Was any? Did you feel any? greater sense of responsibility in making this film than you have with your prior films because it is 9-11 because it these are real people Ken and Camille real people 
Charles Wolfe, a real person. Now, Tate's character of Lee Quinn, of course, he's an amalgamation of, yeah. of several bloodsuckers. But, <laughs> but... Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I think, you know, when the film was pitched to me um, just in one sentence, I, you know, to be perfectly honest, I kind of shirked, and I wasn't sure if I wanted to delve into such a heavy subject matter. Um, you know, and then I read the script... Um, which I think was really um, beautifully written by Max Borenstein, and I thought, you know, that it was so riveting and compelling, and it was really um, an angle on 9-11 that I hadn't um, heard of before. I, I kind of knew who Ken Feinberg was, but I didn't really know the details of the fund. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, there's a huge responsibility, um, you know, in, in getting it right when when these, you know, people really exist. Um, in, and I wanted to respect the facts and... I certainly didn't want to, you know, Hollywoodize um, the work of Ken and Camille, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I didn't want to fetishize the pain of 9-11 or the pain of the claimants. So I think that was a major, um, you know, uh, it, it was something I really had to think think about before taking the project on. And it was something that, you know, I spoke about to all of my creative collaborators, um, whether it was costumes um, you know, anything, production design, uh, the person helping me with the news footage on TV, you know, all of this stuff, um, you know, I did want to use a certain degree of restraint, um, and I didn't want to sort of um, create tragedy porn, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and that begs, that brings up a very interesting aspect of this film. The actual news footage from that day, from 9-11, mm-hmm. Working and working with your researchers to pull the appropriate footage, and working with your editor with Julia Block to use to be very judicious mm-hmm. in in the use of that footage. But then going a step further, working with Julia with the editing of this whole film. How long do you hold silence? How yeah. long you know? How much time do you give victims to stand up and yell and vent? Um, that had to be a very difficult process for you. Yeah, I mean, and, and Julie is so fantastic. I mean, she just is so emotionally astute. And um, I think we have a similar kind of stylistic, um, I don't know, uh, we kind of have the same tendencies, you know, and, and we, we like similar things. So I, I think there were moments when we just, we love the solitude of characters. We love the silences because it, it can get talky at moments. Mm-hmm. We can get in the weeds at moments, but then there, you know, it was really important to us to show um, Ken's loneliness. I mean, I think he's he's he feels really alone in this at moments, and he isolates himself. Um, so that was really important for us to to capture on screen, um, you know. And um, you know, I, it's also a piece about so many different characters, and I think Julia did a beautiful job, kind of interweaving these storylines, whether it's, you know, Priya, who's the associate, the young associate, um, and, you know, she's kind of going through her own sense of anxiety, or it's Camille, who is, of course, you know, a a very public face um, for the fund and has to kind of um, keep her emotions um, inside, and she has to kind of create this uh, suit of armor for herself in these interviews. You know, we we really tried to touch on um, everyone's involvement you really did, and you did it so beautifully. And I love, I love that you mentioned about Ken's loneliness, because we see that even when he's in his own house, 
when the family is sitting there and they're playing Trivial Pursuit, uh, and he's totally tuned out. Yeah. He, he has no clue. No clue. Mm-hmm. And this is where Michael Keaton shines um, in, in, with his roles and his performance. Because the way that, just watching him here, the way he hangs his head, mm-hmm. you know, the deeper he gets into this, you know, he doesn't want anybody to see him. He doesn't want anybody to talk to him. And then when he starts connecting, but then while he's lost, his head hangs, his shoulders slump. Um, it's mm-hmm. real. The body language is incredible. Yeah. You know, how, you know, how fortunate were you to not only have Michael, but to have Amy, to have Stanley, to yeah. have Tate? This cast is amazing and so perfect in these roles. Well, I was hugely fortunate. You know, I think, um, you know, with, with, with the four of them, certainly, um, you just, in a way, you stay out of their way and you let them do their work. There wasn't, um, you know, they were they were so well prepared. They were so engaged emotionally in the material. And, you know, so it, it made the process really um, fulfilling for me as a director. Um, but Michael is incredible. I mean, it, exactly what you said. I mean, his body language is um, pretty great. And I, I, you know, I realized it on set the first day. I was just watching him and, and he just has a charisma the way he moves his body is um, kind of incredible. And, you know, whether he's, you know, teaching a, a, a class um, as he does in, in, you know, at the beginning of the film um, or, or later when he's kind of slumped over boxes going through files, um, you know, he, he's sort of a natural like that. Um, but Amy, I, I also just, I loved working with her and she really um, is so restrained in it, but I, for me at least, and I, I hope for audiences, it, it, it makes her, um, you know, these moments when she does emote towards the end of the film that much more powerful, I think. Um, but she is uh, she is fantastic, and she was really a joy to work with, as, as with Stanley, of course. What did you, as a storyteller, as a filmmaker, what did you learn about yourself in making worth? Because this goes so much further than the emotional resonance in the stories you've told before. And because it is based on a tr- on truth and history, I'm curious mm-hmm. what you learned about yourself as a storyteller. Um, that's a good question. I, I think um, what to me was kind of the most surprising um, and moving element for me as a filmmaker in this was that, you know, certainly I had my eye on the prize of, of making a film and being finished with it and doing a good job with the final product. But I think the process of it was so joyful and fulfilling. Um, I can't say joyful uh, necessarily, but it was lovely in that, um, you know, first responders came and auditioned. And, in you know, just in the auditioning process, for instance, you know, people really talked about their experiences with 9-11 and so I think the film itself, the process of making it, was something really therapeutic, both for me and for kind of everyone involved. So, you know, extras and, you know, movie stars, we all kind of talked about it on set. Um, and I think everyone's collective experience was kind of bubbling um, under the surface of it all. Even if their stories aren't literally in the film, it's like all of our stories are somehow in it. And I, and I think that that's kind of neat. Um, 
So, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know. An amazing job, Sarah. An amazing Thanks job. Thanks so much, Debbie. With Worth. Um, <laughs> it. I will be watching it again because it is, it speaks so loudly. And I can't wait for your next film. <laughs> Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks, Sarah. Good talking to you again. Good talking to you, too. So until next time, you have a great weekend, holiday weekend, no less. Yeah. And that was my exclusive interview with director Sarah Colangelo. A surprise for all of you today to get to hear this one. No clue what happened with Matthew Berkowitz. Um, No clue. Didn't hear from his publicist either. No response to inquiries. But I can't encourage you enough. Worth is streaming on Netflix now. I can't encourage you enough to see it. The post 9-11 the victims compensation fund and the herculean efforts of ken feinberg and his team in giving at least some kind of remuneration because as a one-time very dear friend attorney friend of mine he's now passed on his son was killed by a drunk driver and he was well suited and qualified to handle a claim for wrongful death for his son's death at the hand uh, in a vehicular collision but he said something so important that I never forgot and that was no amount of money will bring him back and that's also the kind of mindset that some of the victims family members from 9-11 some of them have that had that mindset some wanted equity some let's face it there's always Some people somewhere, there's always going to be a handful that want a cash grab. And for Ken Feinberg and his people to have to sort through all of this and come up with some kind of solution. Uh, No solution would ever bring back a loved one, but maybe something would at least help them and give them a little bit of relief. So I'm looking forward to speaking with Ken tomorrow morning, bright and early. It's 7 o'clock. So I'm going to have that interview for you later in the week on BehindTheLensOnline.net and maybe next week or the week after here on the show as well. But right now, and before I bring him on, John Sherman is on hold. And I have to give a shout-out to his publicist, to Kim Dixon, Dominion 3, Kim is, she's a dear friend, but more than that, she is one of the best independent publicists out in the business today. She loves indie filmmakers. She loves indie films. She personalizes her care and attention with filmmakers. When indie filmmakers blindly email and say, oh, well, I can pay you to write a review to give me a good review, that's what other, that's what other press want. No, no, no. You don't pay press to write your reviews. That's why we have publications and other outlets. If you're a filmmaker and you want to pay press, or press are telling you, oh, you have to pay me to move up in the queue so I'll watch your film, no. Run the other direction. Whatever money you thought you were going to pay, find a good publicist, especially when you're indie filmmakers. You know, look for somebody like Dominion 3. Look for somebody like Clint Morris and October Coast PR. Ethical, honest, and they go the extra nine yards for you. And Kim knew that our first guest 
flaked flaked today. Hopefully it's nothing serious. And she had John call her client call in a couple minutes early to make sure that we had we had coverage. So she goes above and beyond. So any of you filmmakers out there, you indie filmmakers and you need a publicist, don't go spend your money paying press to look at your film. Take that money, get a public get a publicist like Kim and Dominion 3 or Clint and October Coast who will work with you and your limited budget and they'll get you results. And they'll get you decent results. Um so with that in mind, after my soapbox speech about publicists, I am so excited to welcome the wonderful writer-director, John Sherman. Hello, John. Hi, how are you? I am so happy to be talking to you. Congratulations <laughs> on the world premiere. How was it? Thank you. Um I apologize. I've kind of lost my voice over the weekend, but I'm starting to get it back a little bit. But that's what happens when you're screaming and yelling and shouting because your film is premiering. Yeah, and also you're trying to do it through a mask. Yeah, so... (laughs) (laughs) How was the film received at Dances with Films on Saturday? Oh, it was so nice to be able to see it with an audience and actually hear where the film is working and people laughing. It's so hard to make a comedy when you can't screen it for an audience and see where it's working and where it isn't. So it was such a pleasure. Uh, well, I think I loved it. I, I laughed myself. There are parts of this film that are hilarious. <laughs> hilarious. Oh, thank you. The, ho- <laughs> the whole premise of this film, of blending these two families, and of course, you're focusing on the two parents. Uh, yeah. played by Joey Slotnick and Amy Hargreaves. They play Charlie and Lisa. They each have two kids. They start dating, but they're navigating the water, the dating waters post-divorce. It, they're yeah. in their late 40s or 50s. Um, exactly. So right there. All the challenges. Uh, right there, you've got that. And you've got Charlie, <laughs> even though he's divorced, is a contentious relationship with his ex-wife. Uh, which she spews down, and he also, to a large extent, just spews that venom down at the kids uh, (laughs) who are teens. So we've got teenagers, four teenagers involved here as well, two with each of (laughs) each. Uh, So you're tapping tapping into everything, John, (laughs) that makes for comedy. It's not at all based on real life. Oh, no, I'm sure it's not at all based on real life. Uh, But then we look at the personalities of Charlie and Lisa. And that's where real comedy comes in. You've got poor Charlie and Joey Slotnick. (coughs) He does hapless so well. (laughs) And Charlie is, he's hapless. He's lost his job at a liberal arts college. Um, he's, you know, he got fired. You know, he's got to find mm-hmm. a job. His son, his son, Danny, okay, he's a pothead who is venturing into further things. Um, you know, ignores, forgets that his daughter even exists. Um, it's like <laughs> she's the good child, but you can ignore the good child. Um, but, exactly. But he's so obsessed with himself. But he's got to get a job, and he gets a job 
Um, yes, Charlie Goldman gets a job at a Christian school to teach a film course, a film history course. Um, yeah. So, and he's trying to figure out: should he wear a cross? Should he not wear a cross? You have these moments that define characters in this film, John. That are just you just look at them. There's no dialogue. You just look and you see the yeah. antics of what's happening and you're laughing. You know, and then then we have artist Lisa who does big paintings or whatever, has a studio, and she's got her mm-hmm. two daughters, one of whom once it once, you know, gender identity becomes an issue. Mm-hmm. Uh Wants to be they, them, not he, mm-hmm. not he or she, um, they, them, there. Um, so she's dealing with that. But then she also has a little sideline going <laughs> where she goes to classes <laughs> for bondage and, and, and sadomasochism. And it's done as a comedy. Actually, you play this as a comedy. And her best right. and her best friend Lauren is one of the quote unquote kinkster teachers. Um, yep. So and Charlie doesn't know about this, and Lisa keeps this side of her from him, even after they decide, let's move in together, much to the chagrin of four kids who don't like each other, exactly. who don't like either adult, <laughs> not even their own adult. Um, let, let alone the opposite one. And you just build and build. Where, John, you know, where? I know you co-wrote this with your wife, with Melissa Vogley Woods. Where mm-hmm. did you come up with this? And, you know, you bring in absurdity that just builds on the inherent comedy. But you also give us... Some darkness here too. So, some yeah. you know darkness that happens with the kids, and right. it's something that God forbid any parent has to deal with. But so yep. many in this day and age do. Um, but where do you even start? Where did the germ of an idea come for <laughs> for they them us? Right. Okay. So there's a couple things. Um, Melissa and I did meet in our 40s, and we both have two kids. So there's that. Uh, So there is a grain of truth in the story. The other thing is wanting to make a classic sort of Hollywood movie in the vein of my favorite filmmakers and the filmmakers I love to teach, who Preston Sturgis, who's mentioned in the film, Mm -hmm. and Billy Wilder, and really wanting to explore tone and because the idea like parenting for me is you know it's the ultimate like it's you could see it as funny or it's tragic and it can ride the line at any moment and that is very similar to the kinds of movies that I really love so I wanted to make a movie that is sort of grounded in that idea of parenthood and the absurdities and the tragedies of parenthood but also something real, too, at the same time. So there are elements that are taken from our lives, um, and then it's kind of fictionalized from there. And I also wanted to make a romantic comedy set in the Midwest, because people don't 
really get to see stories like this. Mm-hmm. And no one would imagine that there is a kink scene in Columbus, Ohio, right? <laughs> so it's like, I mean, on the surface, everyone here is kind of nicey-nice. And there's that element of it. But there's so many different kinds of people here. And I wanted to make a story in which Columbus was a character and to sort of explode the notions of what we think of as the Midwest. Because I only came here about 10 years ago, and I came from New York. And it just wasn't even on my radar until I started living here, obviously. And those were sort of the, the ideas that this whole thing sprung from. And I know a lot of them wouldn't necessarily seem like they would belong together. So that was the challenge, just to try to put all this together into this big soup and see what stuck and what worked. <laughs> well, I personally, I think it all works. It works wonderfully for my money. Thank you. I Thank I, you. I just think it's fat. It's it's incredible. Um, now, it was always your intent to direct, correct? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, this is kind of my second phase of my directing career. Like, I was an independent film director in New York City. You know, I made a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar movie. I made a $10 million movie, which was crazy to take that leap. But it wasn't until I became a professor that I really started to look at movies again another way. And I had to think so carefully about why I liked what I liked because I'm teaching these movies to people and I'm just living and breathing them. So this is kind of the second phase of my directing career, I'll call it. You know, and not, not all of us are able to be fortunate enough to get second acts in life. Mm-hmm. Tell me about it. You know, I figure I'm probably yeah. in my third act now. I, 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 There's no room for a fourth one. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. But, you know, I, I think also we don't get to see stories about people in their 40s and 50s much on screen right. anymore. And it's a neglected audience. I feel like there's a lot of people my age who grew up with romantic comedies that they loved, and now everything is for people in their 20s. Or it's people in retirement homes. You know, yeah. There's like nothing in between. And, you know, and that's like, I love when the scenes when Charlie is teaching and you've got film titles, mm-hmm. you have some of the best, you've got a real variety of films on there. But I love that you have the classic films and that you do talk about the classic films with those rom coms that of the 40s yeah. that people in their 40s and 50s are going to be so excited to see those you gravitate towards them i'm in my 60s yeah. and i gravitate towards them i was so happy to hear preston Surges's name come up in the film i'm like oh my god no i i did an interview this weekend with a film writer and he hadn't heard of preston Surges, so oh. it's interesting to me <laughs> that always scares me that always concerns me with yeah you kind of wonder you say you love movies and it's like well you better watch some movies <laughs> I had that, uh, just a little, an offshoot of that a uh, number of years ago, back in 2006. I was at a film festival talking to a publicist there, a junior publicer, publicist, who talked about, oh, he has to be a publicist. He loves movies. He loves actors. He loves talent. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's like, okay, you know, I said, well, what about some of your classic films? Well, I know film. Okay, well, what do you like about Singing in the Rain or Arthur Freed, you know, and the unit, the musical unit at MGM? What's Singing in the Rain? Oh, my God. You heard a collective gasp 
of probably yeah. of 20 something year olds who were standing around there and it just, I, I, it just mortifies me. So to see you incorporate into this film, teaching 20-somethings about film and you're incorporating classic film to broaden their film history knowledge, I just thought that was a really nice, nice add to this, to this tale. That's great that you appreciate that. I mean, they love these movies when you show them yes. to them. And, and, you know... They're, they still feel so fresh, and the dialogue is so clever and so fast. And they don't; these movies don't wait for the audiences. They just go. So I think we need more of that in this world. Absolutely. Now, knowing that you would be directing this, John, how did you go about developing, working with your cinematographer, uh, your yeah. Fletcher Wolf, and how did you go about developing your visual tonal bandwidth? Because you have some really nice visuals you shoot it very straightforward, very cleanly. Um, you don't right. get you don't get fancy. You let the story and the comedy. T- the comedy is what drives this story. The family and the comedy drives the film. You don't get fancy with anything. Right. Okay, except when maybe we're at the Kingster convention, and then he, right. and then Fletcher get has fun with lights. Uh, <laughs> yep. <laughs> but beyond that, it's very clean. So I'm curious what you and Fletcher were looking for with your visual tonal bandwidth and that uh, that visual construct. Yeah, I mean, so the, the classic comedies that I love tend to be shot in two shots, mm-hmm. you know, because you let the actors create their own timing and let them work, which makes, works really well for us because we shot during COVID. I don't know if you knew that, but like we were uh, one of the d- first films. Yeah, and we're going to get to that in a minute because that's okay. that's a whole other wrinkle in independent filmmaking. Yeah, yeah, but it really like I only had twenty days to shoot the movie, so we needed a style that allowed us to actually get the movie done. And luckily, when you work with two great actors like that, like Joey and Amy, you can trust them enough to just let them go, and it just made sense given. Well, and plus the intimacy of the movie, the camera's very close to mm-hmm. them a lot. Yes. So it just makes sense for the kind of story you're telling to do that. And it also grounds the film in a reality because you, it would be easy to go broad with something like this. Mm-hmm. And it wouldn't be believable. And the style of light, um, the camera work, is, it's very like, it's, a, it's kind of loose. Uh, hopefully you don't always know that it's handheld, but a lot of it's handheld. And it really just allows the actors to do their best work so that we could be shooting as much as we could on short days in a short schedule. Mm-hmm. So you just kind of you take what you're given and make the best of it. Well, and I have to say, I love the framing, and I love your use of the two-shot, but what I really took uh-huh. note of is whenever the four teens are together, you try and you keep them together, building that dynamic, because that's the first dynamic that really gels. Uh, right. at, at the right. at, When they're all, the whole family goes for go-karts, and Charlie, of course, is doing something to embarrass them, as always. Yeah. Um, you know, one of those dad things. But it's the four kids that are the first ones to really start bonding. 
exactly. And so the, you start. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, and and the camera re- captures that so effortlessly. Wow, thank you. That's so kind of you, and so um, it's great that you noticed that. We start off with them in singles a lot, mm-hmm. and then as the film moves along, and we want them to feel more like a family, we start doing three shots, four shots, and framing them like they're a family, so that you start to get used to them in the frame together. Yeah, and but you know, you're—it's the kids. You're talking about you really? Yeah, yeah. It's the kids you focus on, and that go kart sequence is that's the that's the pivotal moment where the whole dynamic the visual dynamic shifts Mm -hmm. exactly exactly and And, you know that's free to do like you don't need a lot of production value to do that you just have to be smart about how you're constructing the movie you know given the limitations of covid the budget uh so many different scenes to shoot in 20 days. Mm-hmm. You know, when we first uh, planned the movie, the assistant director said, there's no way you can shoot this movie in 20 days. And then when he saw Fletcher in my shot list, he knew that we could do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it, you, it looks like you were very judicious in in your shot list and in your planning. Um, you really honed yeah. in. On, you knew what you wanted editorially going into it. A hundred percent. You know, you kind of have to cut a movie like this in your head, you know, because you just know what you can't afford to get. You know, mm-hmm. you don't have time to do a lot of coverage. Plus, you have to, and that that also comes from practice that you just know which angle you're going to be in and for a certain scene because, you know, you again, you don't have time to to shoot it five different ways and decide yeah. in the editing room. Nor should you. A good director doesn't do that. You've mentioned the budget. You encountered something that hasn't real has not happened before in filmmaking. You're one of the first films during COVID to be given a green light to okay shoot, but with that, your budget goes out the window because then what was it seventy five to a hundred thousand dollars more you needed just for the COVID yeah. protocols for testing. What do you yeah. do as an independent filmmaker? You have scraped and scrimped to come up with money to make your film as it is. And now it's, oh, well, yeah, you can make your film, but you need another $100,000 to pay for, for COVID testing and protocols. How? Yeah, I mean, where, where do you go? What do you do after you've downed a fifth of vodka, thrown yourself on the floor, had a tantrum, and stared at the ceiling for a week? Yeah, it was, it was huge. I mean, when Sad told us that we had to get our test results back in 48 hours. And at that point, we were averaging five to seven days for getting the results back. So we had to find a lab in Wisconsin that was able to do it. And we had a COVID guru that helped us organize everything. And even then, you know, the price made it so cost prohibitive. It was just, we we had to shoot. If we hadn't shot last August, it would have pushed for at least a year and maybe never come together. So you bite down hard and put them on credit cards and just hope oh for the my best. God. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I, oh, John. I tried a lot of different things. Like, you know, we've have a lot of different arts organizations in Columbus that tried to help us pay for the testing because we were creating jobs and we tried 
you know, to convince them that it was good for the city. And they know it's good for the city, but it was just hard to find a sponsor at the last minute that would pay for it. Well, and especially so, since because of COVID and people being out of work and the country being on lockdown, you yeah. know, there was no income because these arts groups and foundations, they live on donations. You can't get donations right. from people who don't have money coming in. So it's a whole, yeah. it's a whole snowball. It was. But the, the, the bright side of it was that we were able to get a top, top union crew to make this movie on non-union rates. Wow. And they just wanted to work. And the best people in the state were available for us. So the movie looks... I feel like it looks like a $2 million movie. We had such great technicians and people behind the scenes and the crew supporting Fletcher was so solid. So that was the upside of it all. I but mean, they all needed to be tested oh, <laughs> every I, other day. Every other day. No, mm-hmm. it does look like you spent a couple million dollars on this film. Yeah. Michael Lennick did your, did your editing and did a really nice job at finding those comedy beats you know, how challenging was that? Because I'm sure you get to the truly comedic scenes at, at, the, at the, the Kingster convention. Um, yeah. There had to be so much more in there that it's like you could have just run, got, run rampant um, with comedy because of the way that that was playing out. Because you had incredible performances. Trina Garnier, she's amazing. She is hilarious. <laughs> Oh, she is hilarious in this film. But finding those comedy spots, and obviously you're shooting coverage because you're getting um, Joey's character, Charlie, from one director, uh, one direction, Amy's character, Lisa, from another direction. Uh, mm-hmm. And then you've got, uh, you know, essentially a profile shot of both of them. But it's finding those beats with that dialogue. How challenging was that for you and Mike? And did you do the editing remotely via Zoom? Yeah. So I'll just to take the first question. That those scenes were the hardest to do because we actually had extras in them, which means like the other scenes we had crew that doubled as extras. So if you look closely, you'll see the same people in the back of a restaurant or in the classroom. Like that's we, a small town, extras, but for the. <laughs> The kink space, we know we knew we needed at least a few people in there. So at that point, the largest gathering you could have in Ohio was 25 people, I think. So that's what limited us in terms of the extras. But we had to test them, get them into the protocol, and make sure they were all okay. So we had to plan those shots very carefully. Uh, Trina's husband, Drew, actually makes the furniture that's in that space and oh, when wow. he told me yeah it was crazy he told me about this piece of furniture that he had where people could actually face each other or 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 face away from each other that's when i figured out how to do the comedy in there where mm-hmm. they were both dr well i should say it's a spoiler but basically it allowed me to create the comedy in there then Mike is a brilliant editor, but was so worried about COVID, he would not let me into his space. Oh. So, yeah. So we did a lot on Zoom. He would send me uh, files of scenes, and we just had to trust each other. But we were able to edit for about 12 to 14 weeks, so that wow. allowed us 
time to get it right. Well, something that I noticed in there uh, during the con- that Kingster convention scene uh, in that room, you also really have social distancing in place with the way you have the room laid out and the distance that people are actually be- from one another. That's so funny that you noticed that. Yeah, I did a ton of research on the felt to make it right. Uh-huh. And that's actually how it would be laid out in a convention because if someone's using a whip, you would need at least six feet away well, yeah. to be away from them so that you don't hit them. <laughs> so it worked out. Yes, we've all learned that from Indiana Jones. So, <laughs> yeah, but I that's noticed that, that, well, look at that. Something in life was already all set for social distancing. Who knew? There you go. <laughs> the things we learn from movies. Now, I yeah. also, you've got David Carbonara, how you got him as your composer. And then you've got a nice score that is filled in with needle drop, a few needle drops, um, musically. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, so, a, it's nice. It's a nice score. It's nothing over the top. It fits the family idea that, you know, that Ohio bordering Middle West kind of vibe. Um, what were you looking for, and how did you manage to score David Carbonara? Well, David is a friend of mine. Um, I went to college with his wife, Daisy Mayer, who is a, a TV director. And David uh, composed a, a TV movie that I did for the Oxygen Network, so I knew him. He, I told him there's no money. He just really wanted to do it uh, because we've worked really well together in the past. And then he, having worked on Mad Men, he <laughs> yeah. knows how to be really subtle with his score mm-hmm. because Matt is not someone that likes a lot of music in a scene. And when there is music, he doesn't want you to be aware of it. So David, he calls it ducking under dialogue, and he's very, very good at it. And then we always knew that we wanted a soundtrack of Ohio bands. Mm-hmm. So, cause the movie is really meant to showcase the city. And we, I uh, got in contact with a couple of different labels here. And I think we have 14 songs, 12 of them are from Ohio bands and everyone agreed to the same fee oh. in order to do the movie. And it was just that I'm almost as proud of that as I am of, making shooting the feature during covid because it's a miracle that we were able to put together a score a a soundtrack like that with the budget we had yeah i love the needle drops and you put it and you know really good use you've got that really fun montage and you know a cut cut montage sequence where you've got lisa and charlie doing their thing you've got the girls doing their thing after they've put pot into lasagna uh, casserole yeah. and and are eating it. Um, you've got, uh, you know, son Danny, our pothead, who is now advanced to something else, who is often is, <laughs> you know, for a night that is not going to be a good one. It's a great montage. You've got great music spun in there, and we get enough dialogue happening. In addition to some really, Fletcher's got some really nice camera work happening in that entire segment with Danny's character. And I can't tell you how impressed I am with Jack Steiner, who plays Danny. Really difficult, difficult difficult 
scene to do. Uh, and yeah. he really, he really pulled it off where he's out on the patio and he's just tripping. And it's like there's a door there and like he's doing a karate chop on the door. Um, oblivious. Um, you start really feeling for this kid. Uh, yeah. Really, Jack really he's, impressed me with his performance. That's that's so nice to hear. I hope he's so happy because this was his first movie. He just graduated from the University of Cincinnati acting program, and a friend of mine teaches there. And I asked him if he had any students that he would recommend, and he recommended Jack, and he just nailed it, nailed it in the audition, and. I think he's going to go on to great things. He's definitely got some chops there. And and then the three girls, you've got Shanna Strong, you've got Lexi Bean and Sarah Eddy, and as Anna, Maddie, and Courtney, respectively. And they're mm-hmm. wonderful. And when we get to, to the pot and lasagna <laughs> sequence, watching those three girls together is just absolutely you, there is not a minute you don't believe that they are, they are truly sisters in that moment. They have oh, become nice sisters. Um, the chemistry amongst the four teens all together is really good, and it's really believable. So when they do come together, you know, after the initial, no, I don't like you. I don't like you either. Yeah. So after we get beyond that, you really see them as a family. It's great to hear. Yeah, Lexi, we found in New York. We have a New York casting director who cast Joey and Amy and Lexi. And for Lexi's role, I, it was essential that I found an actor that actually is non-binary. And Lexi just gave an amazing audition, very quiet, very real. Again, you know, that part could have been a little bit broad, but Lexi brings so much heart and just, uh, I don't know, so so believable Mm -hmm. and then shanna and jack and sarah are from louisville cleveland and cincinnati respectively and that was our ohio casting director lynn myers who found them and lynn um has gotten to work with todd haynes a lot in the movies that he's done in cincinnati (laughs) so she has a deep bench of actors that she knows she can go to for film and will deliver and and you know it's just these these kids just need a shot. It's just they're not in New York and L.A. Right. So people wouldn't necessarily know them. Yeah. Oh, a, a, a terrific job with the casting. You really, yeah, you really they... knocked it out of the park with the casting here, John. So now oh, thank you, you. you've had this great world premiere. You finally got to hear, see and hear the film with an audience. Hear those laughs. You know, hear, you know, hear the sobs at a couple points like every family has some you know, yeah. tear-worthy moments. Um, what's next for They, Them, Us? Are you still, do you have future fest, festivals coming up? What What's happening? So it'll be at the San Diego Festival in October, and there will be some festivals after that as well that we're still nailing down. But really, I would just, I'm trying to get the film out in the world. So we have a sales agent that is, helping us sell it and we just got a couple of good reviews and I think that hopefully there's an audience for it and we can get it right out there is my is my hope you oh, know there's... I mean we will do the festival circuit too but I just think there's an audience for the movie hopefully oh I, I definitely think there is this definitely definitely fills a niche that is lacking 
<laughs> woefully lacking. Um, and we can do with more kinds of films like this where families are being redefined in this day and age. This speaks to that. It speaks to the trials and tribulations of parenting, uh, of yeah. divorce, of what happens if kids are put in the middle. But you right. do it with a lighter touch. You're not jamming it down anybody's throat. And I think that's yeah. so important with this film because you've got a lot of themes going on. There's a lot of tacit messaging uh, exactly. about families going on. But you're not shoving it down anybody's throat. So uh, I think that's very important with this film. Yeah, I mean, my favorite filmmakers taught me that if you want to teach someone a lesson, you better make them laugh. Yeah, if you can't, you know, if you can't laugh at, at the film, if you can't laugh at yourself, you've got a serious problem. Uh, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But now, one last question for you, John. I'm really curious. What did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker with all the trials and tribulations in getting this film made? What did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker that you can now take forward with future projects? Yeah, that's a great question. I think just having the faith and telling a story that's personal, that there will be something universal in that and not trying to write a movie that feels like it's just going to be commercial and try to appeal to as many different people. I think if you start small and it's true and real, then hopefully it will feel universal. So just to be able to write something, not autobiographical necessarily, but as personal and true as possible, that will allow it to resonate. And well, it definitely does. And your money shot of the film is the final shot of the film. I got to tell you. Oh, thanks. It oh, is, God, that's so nice to hear. It is. That, that just brought everything. It brought everything home. No pun intended. But yeah, no, that, yeah. that's your money shot on the porch. That's so kind. Yeah. And Pine Grove, the band that uh, they actually formed at Kenyon College where I teach. They're pretty famous. And they were just so sweet to allow us to use that song for almost no money. Oh, wow. So that really helped a lot. And that helped get the other bands in, too. But Pine Grove came in. So, um that they were kind of my secret weapon for that scene as well well it's a beautiful scene but yeah that's that's your money shot right there that should that should be on your poster that should be on your poster uh yeah (laughs) oh john i can't thank you enough this has been a pure delight talking to you about they them us thank you so much like just the how carefully you've watched it and how much you know about film. It's just so much fun to talk to you. Oh, I live for this. And I love talking oh, yeah. to I love talking to filmmakers like yourself with the heart that oh, you put you. into your film. And that definitely comes out here. And I can't wait to see what you do next. Oh, thanks. I've got yeah, I've got a couple of projects that I'm working on. You know, I teach too, so we'll see when they come when they're ready. But uh yeah. I have one that's kind of personal about New York City in the 80s and the high school that I went to. And um, there was a lot of uh, there was sexual abuse scandal, let's say. So mm. we'll, we'll leave it at that for now. So. Well, I, <laughs> whatever, whatever you do, I hope you'll come back on the show again. Open invitation, John, anytime. <laughs>
Oh, thank you so much. Oh, what a pleasure. Thank you, John, and you have a great rest of your day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was John Sherman talking, writer-director, They, Them, Us. As John said, next up, San Diego Film Festival. And there is a website for They, Them, Us. And I didn't bother. I totally brain death. Forgot to write the site down in my notes. Um, is it on? Is it on? I don't know. Hey, Kim, did you put it on the, on the press notes? Um, yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes, here it is. Bless you. It's, go to www.theythemusfilm.com. Uh, and that will give keep you updated with where the film is playing on the festival circuit, when it sells, when there's going to be distribution. Um, go there, and there's a lot of fun stuff about the film on the website as well. You know, unfortunately, Matthew Berkowitz did not join us today to talk about Madness Inside Me. Um, it's out there right now and available digitally. It's an excellent film, excellent psychological thriller. If you get a chance, see it. But please, keep your eyes out for They, Them, Us. It really is well worth your time. And, of course, speaking of worth, on Netflix, now, worth, Michael Keaton, Stanley Tucci, Amy Adams, um, directed by Sarah Colangelo, written by Max Borenstein, story of Ken Feinberg and the September 11th Victims Compensation Fund. It is a must-see, a must-see uh, for the year. Well, that is all the time we have. Until next week, we've got more fun stuff, more people. Yes, and we will have people next week calling in. I know this for a fact. So until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.